Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that you've given me to speak, but I ask that your words would come out. And Lord, I'm even more grateful for the opportunity that you've given each one of us to live at this time in history where we see events that are unbelievable before our eyes. So Lord, I ask that your spirit would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me try this again. Okay. So the scripture reading was from Jeremiah chapter 30, uh, but it's also found in Daniel 12, almost the same sentiment. It says, uh, Daniel 12, verse 1, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be written in the book. And so that's just a, um, a reiteration of this time of trouble. So in Jeremiah it said the time of Jacob's trouble. But I always like to start with scripture, but this week's events have been so extraordinary uh, that it would be difficult to not speak about them. So I've had to change a lot of what I was going to say because the events demand it. Um, you know, typically we like to hear comforting lies a lot better than unpleasant truths. And occasionally you get a moment in history where people are a little bit more open to the unpleasant truths. And this week we see events that kind of demand attention. And you think, well, are people ready for the unpleasant truth? And I actually don't think we are. Uh, you know, the events were terrible last week, but everybody was in agreement. There was nobody who said, oh no, uh, the death of George Floyd was somehow acceptable. Nobody said that. Everyone was in agreement that this was an awful thing. Uh, the police officers, no police officer came to defend those police officers. Everybody is on the same side. But then as, you, as the events unfolded in the week, you can see that we are more divided than ever, that it just exploded. And so even though we're all on the same side of the igniting event, the igniting event, it, that's not the real issue because we all agree on that event. So there's something deeper that's going on that's not going to be addressed right away. People are coming up with ideas and solutions. But what you really see is that people, especially uh, leaders at this time, they really have no idea what to do next. We saw this with COVID-19. You have this pandemic, and everyone's just grasping for straws. What, what do we do about this? And they try this and they try that and they keep changing their mind. And, and then after this week, of course, who, who can enforce a, uh, a stay-at-home order now? I mean, everyone's proved that the stay-at-home order was fake because as soon as there's a major event that you need to get out for, everyone just goes out. They just go out. There's no stay-at-home order. So the leaders don't really know what to do. And this gets us to that... Uh, that time that we're getting near. So 
Uh, this is an interesting quote from 1902 from Ellen White. It says, the end is near and every city is to be turned upside down every way. It's very interesting just in light of this week when you read this quote now. There will be confusion in every city. Everything that can be shaken is to be shaken and we do not know what will come next. The judgments will be according to the wickedness of the people and the light of truth that they have had. Now that should be a little warning to us because it is our job to bring that light of truth. We are actually supposed to be bringing this light of truth and people will be judged on the amount of truth they have. Uh, and so that's a little bit incumbent on us. But if you read through a little bit of Spirit of Prophecy, especially looking for areas where she talks about moving out of the cities, there's quite a bit. And it's very measured. It doesn't say everyone needs to get up and run to the country at the same time right now. You have to be measured in your approach. I've seen people move to the country, convinced God was taking them there, but they didn't make any plans. And it, it ended in disaster. I mean, they lost everything that they had built up to move to the country and they didn't know what they were doing. And she never says to do something drastic like that. Everything should be measured and planned out. But we can see the events happening in the cities, you know, the warning is going out. It's going out so strong that I was stunned on Monday to see this. This was a, on a major cable news program, The Five, and, it, and uh, this guy, Greg Gutfeld said, who, who's not religious at all, I've never heard him say one thing that would indicate that he has any uh, religious bone in his body. And he said, I think that we are seeing, that what we are seeing is the death of cities. The coronavirus and this kind of violence, it affects the cities more than anywhere else. I think it's time we start thinking about getting out of the cities. Anybody coming with me? And he, here's a guy who lives in New York City. Uh, and, and I just thought that's fascinating. So the warning is going to the world. We've had the warning for many, many decades. Um, and are we listening as closely as the people who don't know the message. They're watching and they're paying attention and they're saying, ah, I've never heard so many people talk about the end times. It's just everywhere in the zeitgeist, in the atmosphere. Um, people who are not religious, do not study the Bible, are seeing and questioning, is this the end times? And they don't even, uh, they don't have the kind of light that we have on these matters. Uh, the scripture reading again, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Um, you know, when the Bible mentions directions, when it says north or south, and it says like the king of the north or the king of the south, or it says that uh, the, the enemy will come from the north. All of this is in orientation to wherever God's people are. So for a lot of the Bible, that was Jerusalem. So all the directions are given oriented toward, as, uh, from the point of view of Jerusalem. But if God's people move to a different location, then all the directions are for that location. It's for wherever God's people are, this is what it's going to look like. Um, and so too, with this time of trouble... I'm not sure that, everybody, that the worldly people are going to understand it 
the same way. For them, it may not seem like the worst time ever, but from the perspective of God's people, it will be the worst time ever. And uh, why would I say that? Because at Jacob's, in Jacob's time of trouble, we will, we will examine exactly what that means. What is Jacob's time of trouble? What was Jacob going through that's related to these end times? Uh, but it's the experience of God's people. And if, if you're devoted to God, this time is going to be worse than any other. And you think through history, and there's been bad times. There's been persecutions of, of God's people all through history. That is, the history of the world is persecuting God's message and God's people. That's the whole history. So how is this time going to be worse? So whenever you want to study end-time events, a key place to start is Matthew 24. Because in Matthew 24, uh, it starts out and says in verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that, none, that shall not be thrown down. This verse, I mean, this chapter goes on to explain the end time events, and we're going to look at that in a second. But I want to point out how this chapter begins, because the next question they're going to ask them is, how are we going to know when the end of, of the age is and when you're coming? When is the end of the world? But before, what, what led up to that question was these two verses here. And so Jesus is showing them this great temple, this beautiful building. It was marble, it was white marble, had gold trim on it. It was uh, huge and beautiful. And he said, see this building here? Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. And, uh, and the disciples uh, couldn't understand this. They said, well, how is that going to happen? This is a massive building. Even if it got... Even if someone wanted to tear it down or, or tear an earthquake, how could every stone be taken apart? Because we see the Parthenon. The Parthenon got blown up. Uh, I think it was in the early 1600s by the Turks. It was in pretty good shape for a couple thousand years, and then the Turks stored uh, gunpowder in it, and it ignited and blew it up to the condition it is now. And even in that condition, not every stone was fallen down. They're, they're actually, the front and the back were still up, and the middle part was blown out. So it's, how, how is this possible? For us, we know that this did happen in 70 AD. This was a prophecy that then did come true when Titus brought in the Roman troops, and they literally pulled every stone down. And the reason they pulled every stone down is there was so much gold inside of it that the gold was running out like rivers. It had melted and the gold was coming out like rivers, and the soldiers took apart every stone to get all the gold. Uh, and so it really, it came true in, the, in 70 AD. But for our purposes now, we want to know what is the uh, symbolic meaning of this? Uh, because he's about to tell about the end of the world and, the, and his coming, and how we're going to recognize these things, and how we're going to prepare for these things. Um, but, in, but to begin with, he said, see this building? All the stones will be taken apart. The building itself had become like an idol. This was the temple of God, and so they treated it as if it, almost like it was God himself. So as long as the temple stood, God was with them. And they didn't see that even though the, the person, Christ, 
who that temple represented was with them. They were more concerned about losing the building than about losing Christ because they let Christ be crucified and the building stood for another 40 years, a whole generation more. So they weren't worried about this. They were focused on this building. Uh, I want to just step aside for a second to Matthew 7, 22, and think about the idolatry that we have as people that we can put things in the place of God and we call it God. Actually, that's the whole point of an idol. The idol is where you rest your hope and that's where you rest your, that's where you uh, take your comfort. And so Matthew 7, 22, he says, many will say to me in that day, that day is going to be the end of time, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These are always, this is a hard verse to read because no one wants to be in that position. How could these people have prophesied in his name? That means preaching. That means that they're supporting the message of God and they're, they're proclaiming it. We see people on TV all the time proclaiming the message of God. Uh, so they're proclaiming the message of God. They're even casting out devils. They're doing wonderful works in the name of God. And God says, I, I never knew you. How is that possible unless what we're talking about is idolatry where we have an idol and that idol is God or Jesus. The idol has become something like our image of God because an idol is an image. And so if you don't have the real Christ, all you're worshiping is the image. And so the, uh, the, the Bible speaks a lot about the beast and his image, the image to the beast. And the beast, we know, is this, it's just like the temple in Jerusalem. It's this great facade of a false church that, is, uh, that says that it's from God. But it causes you to look at this image in a way from the actual, from Christ and from, uh, from God himself. So back to Matthew 24. So he's talking about this, this temple not one stone will be left on another. And then it caused the disciples to do this. And, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. I love this verse. Because when they say, what's the sign of the end? the very first thing Christ says is, don't be deceived. That means deception will be everywhere. How are people deceived? Um, if you understand how magicians work, magicians work by drawing your attention to the wrong place. So they make sure you're looking here while they're doing the magic over here, and then you don't see what's happening. And so it looks, it's confusing. They know how to make your attention go here while they're working over here. And so Christ says, make sure that you are not deceived. Make sure you're not looking at that temple while I'm the one being crucified. So make sure your focus stays where it's supposed to be, where the action is. So the world is enveloped in the actions of the world. We have the COVID pandemic. 
We have the, the uh, racial crisis in this country that's exploding right now. And these things are important just like the temple of Jerusalem was important. It's not true that that temple was unimportant, but it wasn't the focus. That wasn't what Christ was about. It was important. So all these issues, obviously a pandemic, we are part of our message, part of our major message is health. It's interesting that in all the prescriptions of what we should be doing to prevent the spread of this pandemic, uh, nobody talked about immune uh, support, how to increase your immune system so that you can actually fight it yourself. That was never discussed, at least not broadly. They talked about just how to avoid everything, but not how you could actually prepare yourself so that if you do catch it, it may not be so bad for you. But we have a health message and there is a pandemic. Of course the pandemic is important. The Bible talks explicitly that God's people are not male or female. They are not Greek or Jew. There's no race, there's no gender as far as any kind of hierarchy in God's people. So we've had this message from the beginning. So of course, racial problems are a problem in the church and out of the church. They are important. But at this time, there's going to be so many of these important things happening that we're going to get distracted. We're going to start focusing on the destruction of the temple while we lose sight that Christ has already been crucified and the temple becomes meaningless. Um, so he, he says, make sure that you're not deceived. And then he says, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, pass but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. So he says that all these horrible things are going to happen in the world, uh, but the end is not yet. So every time one of these major events happens, everyone says, oh, is this the end? But he just told us it's not the end. He said, these things are going to happen, but it's not the end. It's the beginning of sorrows. These are the warnings that get the, the world asking the right questions. And we see that. We saw that after 9-11. Um, I've talked to older people who have, well, most of them have passed away now, who remember the world before World War II. And when World War II came, that was the end of the world for that generation. That was unbelievable events. Um, and the, the death and destruction was just unbelievable at that time. So if you lived at that time, you had to have been thinking, is this the end? Is this how it's going to end? But Christ says, no, 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 that's not the end. And then says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. The times that we're living in now seem a little bit more like these times. We're not quite being afflicted directly. They're not killing us in God's name yet. But we know that that's coming. And so if you can imagine, at that time, do you think the world is going to think that that's a terrible time? They're, they said they're going to be killing us in the name of God 
So they're actually thinking that they're improving the situation. For them, this is not the worst time. But for us, we're going to be thinking, well, where is God now? That now they're going after us. I always wondered, how is it that they're going to rationalize going after us as God's people? And when you see how the media talked about the events this week, you can see, oh, this is how it's going to happen. They are going to misinterpret events to fit a narrative that they're looking for because what they need is something explainable. The things that happened this week are not explainable, but they can't say, ah, we don't know what's going on. They have to find a way to explain what's happening. They're going to run out of reasons why this is happening. So right now we can say, oh, it's racial injustice. But if we were to be able to solve racial injustice, which I'm not sure we can. This happened at the Tower of Babel, and I don't think we're coming back as one people without God. That This unity only happens with God, and the world is trying to make it without God. So I can't imagine this could ever happen without God. But let's say we could solve racial injustice. Do you know that that wouldn't solve the problems? Do you know people would still hate each other? It's just that they would realize it wasn't only race. They would say, oh, okay, well, we solved race. There's, now it's this other problem is why we hate each other, and now we've got to solve this problem. We, we declared war in the 60s on poverty. How is that war going? I think Jesus said the poor are always with you. So I don't think that's going anywhere. So if you solve race, you say, oh, well, actually, it's economic inequality. This is the problem. Uh, but this can't be solved either. So they're going to say, wow, we can't solve race, we can't solve economic inequality. It's not going to be long before they start saying, you know what, this country was a Christian nation and we've gone far from God. You know what we need to do? As a nation, we need to go back to God. How does the nation go back to God? Oh, well, it's Sunday, of course. So this has already been put out for over 100 years in this country they've been agitating. The Pope, for probably as long, has been agitating the same thing. And more recently, you see it more and more. These things are being agitated. And so we know that this kind of thing is coming. Um, so prophets will arise and deceive many. I'm sure that these prophets are going to start uh, saying something like this, like, you know who the enemy really is? Are the people who are not obeying God the way we do. In other words, they're not keeping the temple service the right way. You know, Jesus' disciples, they didn't wash their hands before they ate that one time. Clearly, they are not part of this temple service that we worship because they didn't do it right. We're going to be those people, those disciples of Christ, who didn't do it right according to the people who run the temple because that temple meets on Sunday. So clearly, we're going to be agitators. Uh, it goes, the chapter goes on, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, and he that shall endure unto the end, the same, sh the same shall be saved. There's our instructions right there. So we already see the love of many is waxing cold. Uh, we saw it a lot this week. People don't really care about the consequences of their actions, so they're upset about one thing, and they express it by doing something unrelated. So the riots weren't really related, but it became a great excuse. And it actually just shows 
that there was something going on underneath the surface, a surface and all it needed was an ignition to just ignite it and explode. And I mean, if you keep everyone in their house and tell them they can't work and can't go anywhere, that's a good way to get the, uh, yeah, exactly, the pot boiling. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but if we endure till the end, the same shall be saved. And then it goes on and says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Um, and then it says, it goes on and says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For, in that, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. This is what gives me the idea that probably the world is not going to think that this time of trouble is the worst they've ever seen. Because in the days of Noah, they didn't feel that way. Uh, I think in Luke, it also mentions um, as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in our Wednesday night study on patriarchs and prophets, when we got to that part about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Ellen White brought out that actually the night before the destruction was a beautiful evening, just like any other. There's nothing in the earth that looked out of place. The activities and festivities of the city went on as normal. Nobody saw that destruction coming. So as horrible a place as that was, it actually was very beautiful. The city was beautiful. The people enjoyed their life there, obviously because they could have left. They could have fled the city and gone somewhere else. Oh, the city's terrible. No, no, no. The city was ungodly and people loved it. Just, they wanted to be there. And so as the world gets more ungodly, the ungodly aren't going to feel uncomfortable. They'll be just fine. Actually, what's making them uncomfortable is us. Uh, it was, it, it was um, Lot and his family, but particularly Lot, that made people uncomfortable. I'm sure they were very happy to actually see him leaving the city. They thought, oh, finally, we don't have this thorn in our side telling us everything we're doing is wrong. <laughs> and so I have a feeling that this time of trouble is for God's people. And so this time is actually what makes us uncomfortable. So back to the, the scripture for the day. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Uh, so what happened in the time of Jacob's trouble? Jacob, uh, what, he was working for Laban for 20 years, and it became uncomfortable for Laban. Uh, Jacob had actually gained such wealth that Laban just wanted him to leave. And he was tired of him. And so God actually instructed uh, Jacob. He said, all right, it's time to come back to your homeland. There's just one little problem for Jacob. Esau was waiting to kill him. Esau, they did not leave on good terms, these twin brothers. 
uh, Jacob had stolen the birthright that was owed to Esau because Esau was born first. The birthright had two things. It was a spiritual birthright. He was a spiritual head of the family, of the extended family. It also had a double portion of the inheritance. So the inheritance among two brothers would be divided three ways. Two portions go to the oldest and one portion to the youngest. And so Jacob had stolen the birthright with that uh, delicious uh, porridge of red lentils. And, uh, and so he, he deceived his brother out of the birthright at a moment of weakness. So when he was coming back, he knew there was trouble, but he obeyed God to go back. So on the journey, when he gets to the border of the land, he's on the border, he sends the family and all of his wealth, all the cattle and all the people that worked for him, he sent them ahead and he stayed back to pray to God that night. So it's a, it's a good warning for us. This time of Jacob's trouble, this is the time when God's people are going to be very, very prayerful because we see what's coming. We see that Esau or the people who are not of God want to kill us. That's in front of us. And we have God behind us telling us to go forward. Just like the, the children's story this morning with Steve. He has to pull his hand out. Is the water going to fall or not fall? He doesn't know. The only way to know is to act. So he's, he's being told what to do, but it doesn't look right. So God told Jacob, go back home, but it doesn't look right. I, I want to just make a, an aside here and compare this with Jonah. So, so this is the time of Jacob's trouble, but we often relate ourselves a little bit to Jonah because we know that uh, Jonah was asked to go and preach a word to an, a wicked city, Nineveh. And this is like the world we live in, Nineveh. It's a wicked city, and we're supposed to go preach the word. And a lot of times what we think happened to Jonah is that he didn't want to give the word for the same reason that we don't want to give the word. Because we're like, they're not going to listen to me. But look closely. This is not what Jonah that was not Jonah's faith. Jonah's faith was very different. And Jonah 3.10 says, And God saw their works. Oh, so uh, let me lead up to this. So Jonah ran away from God. He went on the ship. He gets thrown in the water, swallowed by the fish, spit up on land. He finally says, Okay, God, I'll go. The reason that Jonah didn't want to go is because of the climax here. In Jonah 3.10, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he, uh, that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. So his message worked. Jonah was not afraid that his message wouldn't work. Jonah 4.1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. So he was angry that, the, that Nineveh had repented and that now God would not destroy the city of many, many people. It goes on in verse 2 and says, And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country and therefore I fled before unto Tarshish? He's saying, This is why I fled. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. He, 
actually knew that if he preached the word, people would accept it. Jonah is not like us at all. He said, I'm going to go there, and actually people will listen, and I know you, God, you're not going to destroy them. So I'm running away, because I don't want to give this message, because I want them to be destroyed, because they're wicked. Jacob's, this is not, that's why it's not called the time of Jonah's trouble, because Jonah's trouble, he knew, he had faith that God's word had power. Jacob was more like us. Jacob had what scientists today call cognitive dissonance. And this is because Jacob was both trusting God when God said, go home, he said, okay, and, he, and by action, he did it. So we know he trusted God, because if he didn't, he wouldn't even bring his whole family and cattle and everything with him. He wouldn't be on the journey if he didn't trust God. But he also was afraid of Esau. We're afraid of the people of, of the world. How can you trust God and be afraid of Esau? That means, I, I mean, from my perspective, I'd say, oh, I don't think Jacob really believes. Jacob is having a, a crisis of faith because he doesn't believe that God will protect him. And he tries to do all these things to appease Esau. And it kind of shows like, well, maybe you don't really trust God then. But he's of two minds. Now, Satan brings the accusation, see, Jacob doesn't really trust you, God, because he's afraid of Esau. He doesn't trust you. And so God has to prove, is Jacob with God or does Jacob not trust God? Where is his faith? So that's why he wrestles. You can see this quote from a Great Controversy. It says, like Jacob, all are wrestling with God. We are wrestling with God because God is proving not just to the world, not just to Satan, but also to us where we're at because we're confused. We trust God and we're afraid of the world. We have both. Now, the time of Jacob's trouble is actually after probation ends. This is a time when God has already decided uh, the fate. So God already knows uh, who his people are but he's going to prove it to the people themselves and to the world and to Satan who are making the accusations. So at this time, your fate is already known. God already knows that Jacob has faith in him. But this time without an intercessor is a very scary idea. It's actually proving that your faith really is with God. Of course, you don't know it's the time of trouble, because you don't know the intercessor has left the sanctuary. You're not aware of this yet. And so you plead with God all night long like Jacob, because he's pleading and pleading and pleading, and then the angel touches him, and he thinks it's someone who's out to get him. So he wrestles with all of his strength for the entire night. I'm afraid, though, this is from Review and Herald, December 24th, 1889. This quote is just fascinating. It says, there are many who are at ease, who are, as it were, asleep. They say, if prophecy has foretold the enforcement of Sunday observance, the law will surely be enacted. And having come to this conclusion, they sit down in a calm expectation, expectation of the event, comforting themselves 
with the thought that God will protect his people in the day of trouble. That day of trouble, the, day, the time of Jacob's trouble follows quickly after this Sunday law. But God will not save us if we make no effort to do the work he has committed to our charge. That's amazing. That's really amazing because I got to admit, when I read the first part of this uh, article, I said, actually, that is kind of me. I'm kind of not afraid of the coming Sunday law because I'm pretty sure God will protect me. And then I read this and said, oops, oops, this is me. I'm not afraid of this time because I don't understand the time. That's why I'm not afraid of it. Because I thought, oh yeah, well, it's coming. There's nothing we can do about it. It's just going to happen. And when it happens, God will provide the way. Notice she doesn't say that God will not protect his people. It says we can't expect that protection if we haven't made the effort to do the work in our charge. And what's the work that we're supposed to do? We're supposed to be Jonah and go to the wicked city and proclaim the message. The message of our time is that Christ is coming soon. That's obvious. And to prepare your hearts, to, that, that the test will be uh, obedience. So do we obey God or do we obey the image of God? Are we following Christ or are we following the temple service? The temple service claims to represent God. And Christ is here in person. So are we following the person of Christ or are we following the temple service? So that temple service, you know, we could say in this case, we could look at it as uh, the, the historic uh, church, which is the Vatican. And so the Vatican is rising in power and we'll see that that'll take over more and more. The, the Protestant churches aren't protesting anymore. That's been very obvious. If it wasn't obvious in the last 50 years, in the last 10 years, they've even made statements like that. There's no more protest. They're, they're coming back. So there's no more protesting anymore. The hand is joining together. So we're, we're, we're getting closer and closer to unity, the thing that we've all been looking for, unity. And as we get closer and closer to unity, that, that's when the trouble comes. So as we try to, as, as the nation faces these horrible problems that the media doesn't know what to do, the experts don't know what to do, the leaders don't know what to do, we're already told what the final solution will be. The final solution will be that it must be those Sabbath keepers. We're not there yet. There's some time between now and then because even though these events are showing us how this might happen, we can't actually say, well, then this will happen and then this will happen. We don't know. Uh, that statement about the destruction of the cities, we don't even know what's going to happen. Um, but just to give you a clue of how close we are in the direction that we're going, this is from a, a website called the One Voice Prayer Movement. And this started November 5th, 2019. And I just show kind of the page so you can see the, the logo in the corner, the One Voice Movement, and it's hard to see, but the watermark underneath is the White House. And that's because one of the people who started this is uh, the president's spiritual advisor, Paula White. She started this with some other church leaders. And let me um, 
increase that a little bit. Notice I have a little blocked out area. And this is, this is their mission statement about the movement. The goal of one voice prayer movement is to unite the body of Christ to pray for God's values to be expressed. That's a very nice thing to do. And they take this leading from John 17. That's when God prayed that his people would be in unity. They'd be one with him as he is with Christ, as he is with the Father. Then it says, prayer ministries, networks, leaders, and intercessors are all invited to participate in our key to creating the unified voice of prayer as we seek God's direction and calling for our nation. So on one hand, we're prophesied that actually the nation is going to turn against us, God's people. But here's a, a movement to search for God's voice to be unified and move in God's direction for our nation. What is the blacked out part that I left out here? It says values to be expressed through government and the nation. That's actually what the movement is about. It's to pray for the body of Christ, uh, body of Christ to pray for God's values to be expressed through government. So which God is it? Is it going to be the personal living Christ or is it going to be the one represented by the temple and the temple service? I, I have a feeling that they're looking at the temple, the big, beautiful building. That's the one they're looking for. That's the one that's going to be expressed through government. And so you can see, I mean, people have done these things all the time. I'm not saying that we should focus on this one movement. It's just that this is a recent one, and this one is kind of blatant. But I'm not afraid, like, oh, this, this means very, very soon. It could be soon, could be in a little while. This movement may be part of it, it may not. This movement could fade away, another will take its place. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to focus on these things. The important thing is to clear our mind of the cognitive dissonance where we hold two things at the same time that are not compatible. We're both tr trusting God and afraid of the world. And these two things don't go together. I know we're running a little long, but I want to make just one illustration of cognitive dissonance so that this is a little more firm in our mind of how we might overcome this. So wrestling with Christ is the way to get over your cognitive dis dissonance. You wrestle all night, and at the end of that night, Jacob had no question. He knew that he was wrestling with God, and he pleaded, I won't let you go until you bless me. That was his faith. And that's the kind of grip we're going to have to have on Christ. Do you remember that, that the angel, actually Christ, when he's wrestling with Jacob at the daybreak, he says, let me go. He actually told Jacob to let him go. And Jacob said, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. When Christ says, let me go, are we going to say, oh, okay. I hope not. I hope we're gripped tight. So cognitive dissonance. I'll, I'll show you cognitive dissonance in an image. This, this actually gives you cognitive dissonance. If you look on one end, there's three cylinders, and on the other end, there's a squarish two-pronged fork. The two prongs become three prongs. How is this possible? <laughs> um, I, I like this one even a little better. On the left side are three shelves, and on the right side are four shelves. This, this is our brain. 
our brain on one side looks one way and on another looks another. We think it's all the same shelf. Uh, the, the way they illustrate this is a, they say that smokers are already in cognitive dissonance. If you are a smoker today, you are in cognitive dissonance. And it's because everybody knows smoking is not healthy. So if you're a smoker, you are in cognitive dissonance because you're doing something you know is bad for you. And so you have to rationalize it and you pick a few different ways to rationalize this. You either say, well, you know, they, science hasn't really proven that smoking directly causes cancer. There's lots of evidence, but there's no proof. Or you say, okay, I, I know, I know, I know smoking is unhealthy. I know it's going to be the end of me. But you know what? I've cut way back. I smoke a lot less now than I used to. So this way, you're going in the right direction. You feel better. You're like, well, it's bad, but it's not that bad. We are like this all the time. We say, well, I know God asked me to do this, but you know my circumstances. I'm addicted. I'm cutting back. I'm doing less. That, this is cognitive dissonance. You, you know the right thing, but you can't get there. God doesn't expect you to get there. Did you know that? Because you're addicted. Addicts can't quit unless you're Mark Twain. He's quit hundreds of times. It's easy. That's, <laughs> um, the, uh, you quit, but you always start again. So he doesn't expect you to quit. What he expects you to do is to let him be the one in you. Because Christ, guess what? He doesn't have addictions. He's not addicted to things in this world. And so the things that we hold on to, he doesn't hold on to. We're not going to let go of the world to grab on to Christ. But we can ask Christ to be in us because when he's in us, he can't sin. So there's, there's no us becoming perfect. There's us having Christ. That's all it is. When we have Christ, then we have the faith of Christ. And then we can keep the commandments of Christ. There's no keeping the commandments of Christ to have the faith of Christ. Actually, the faith of Christ is Christ in you, the hope of glory that allows you to keep the commandments. This is the preparation. We have to get out of this cognitive dissonance of having two things at the same time that don't go together and thinking that they can go together. So Jacob's time of trouble was great. It relieved him of all his cognitive dissonance. All of his anxiety went away. We're actually told in Spirit of Prophecy that we will not be concerned about being killed in the time of trouble. Even though some of us might be killed, we will not be worried. We'll be like those martyrs who, said, who were said to have gone to their death burning in flames and singing until the end. How can you sing when you're burning? These people are not looking at the world. That is not going to be our problem. We're not going to be concerned about what the world is going to do to us anymore, just like Jacob was not concerned about Esau anymore. But we are also instructed that Jacob did everything he could to work it out with Esau. We are going to do everything we can to bring our message to the world and to work it out with the world. We're not going to be a thorn in their side. We're not going to be saying, you have to do this and you, have, and you should do this and you should do that. 
That's not how we bring the message. We're going to bring it the way Jacob brought it to Esau, which is, that was his brother. He, they had a connection. And he treated Esau like he knew Esau wanted to be treated. So you know what he did? He gave him the monetary birthright because he knew that's what he cared about. Jacob kept the spiritual birthright, which he knew Esau did not care about. So he worked it out with his brother because he understood his brother. We are to understand the world and bring this message. So I pray that we will lose the cognitive dissonance and be ready for the times we live. So let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your kindness to bring us the message through the scriptures to warn us of the times that we live in so that we can understand the times. And you've given us a message and you explain how to give the message and then you come into us to deliver this message through us. And we ask for that power, Lord, that your spirit would be in us uh, this day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Oh. Yeah, what is the closing hymn? I forgot. I, I, I said what it's going to be and then I forgot what it is. Anyway. 626. What's that? Oh, yes, we will exit by rows back to front um, after the benediction.